Philippians chapter 1. We are going to spend an extended amount of time today looking at the Lord's Supper. So that's why I want to give us plenty of time in God's Word and then plenty of time at the end to really be able to sit and simmer um, in the gospel and not run too quickly through the the ceremonial uh, symbolism of the bread and the cup. But before we do that, I, I think it will be helpful for us to remember where we were last week and moving forward to today, to remember what Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished for us now, that we can say with Paul, I'm not afraid of death because in fact, dying is gain. It's not going to take anything away. It's going to gain for me something that I don't have in this life. Last week, we started looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. And I want to read these again and remind us just of where we were last week, and then we'll get part two of what we started last week uh, this morning. Verse 18, the second half of verse 18 reads this, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. We started last week by looking at the three very, very simple motivations, resolutions, three reasons that Paul has breath, has life, three reasons that Paul lives his life. And the first one we saw in verses 18 all the way down to verse 20, that Paul lives to exalt Jesus Christ above all things. He says that specifically when he says that Christ, the end of verse 20, will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. We talked about how many of us live for so many different reasons, so many different things, so many different motivations. And I fear that if we are chasing after a treasure that doesn't really exist, we will be disappointed. We will be put to shame As Paul says in verse 20, he doesn't want to be put to shame and he knows that he will not be put to shame because he knows that his trust and confidence in Christ will not be disappointed. What are we trusting in? What are we living for? Are we like Paul living to exalt Jesus Christ above all things? There are so many reasons that we have to live, but Paul says, I live for reason number one, to exalt Jesus Christ above all things. And we talked specifically about how he goes about doing that in his own life in these short verses. First, he does it by speaking up about Christ. When he says in verse 20 that with all boldness, as he speaks up before 
Felix and Festus and Nero, as he speaks up before these people, he will have all boldness and will not shy away from sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we talked about Paul exalting Jesus Christ by being consistent. Paul says that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. He's consistent. Nothing changes. He is always exalting Jesus Christ in whatever he does, and specifically whether by life or by death. And that's the third way that he exalts Christ. He exalts Christ in whatever circumstance he is in, whether it's life or death. There's no third option. It's life or death, and that's it. And Paul says, I exalt the Lord whether by life or by death. And then he says, verse 20, verse 21, that's so familiar to us, but it starts with that word for. Remember we said we have to put a for up on this banner. For to me to live is Christ. Because I know that life is Jesus and death is gain, I know that whether by life or by death, Christ will be exalted in my body. I know that Jesus will be exalted above anything that is in this life, whether it's life or death, Christ will be magnified and put on high and put on display for all to see. A second motivation, not just exalting Christ above all things, but the second reason that Paul lives his life is found in verse 21 and really through verse 24. He he lives to embrace Jesus Christ as treasure above all things. Better than life, better than anything this world has to offer, he embraces Jesus Christ as his supreme treasure And specifically, he sees his death as a means of treasuring him more. He sees his own death, passing from life into death, as a means of treasuring Christ more. That's really where we need to pick it up this morning. We talked a little bit last week about the phrase, for to me, to live is Christ. And that's really where we ended. That life is Christ. That everything that we do is done in reference to Christ. We look at Colossians 1 verse 18, that Um, Jesus Christ will come to have first place in everything. So he is our list. There isn't uh, Jesus number one, family number two, work number three. Jesus is the list. He's one, two, three, 143. He is your entire list. So everything that we do is done in reference to Jesus Christ. And we cannot separate Jesus from any part of our lives. We talked about what true eternal life is. John 17, verse three, Jesus says, this is eternal life that they may know you. They may know you. To know Jesus Christ, to know God the Father, that is eternal life. So eternal life isn't a quantity of life necessarily, like it will go on forever so it doesn't start until we die. It is really a quality of life. So it's not just for the future alone, it is for the present here and now. But this morning I want to start looking at the second half of this famous verse. To me, to live is Christ. Everything I do is done in reference to Christ. Everything that I treasure in this life is treasured because of Jesus Christ. Life is Christ. They're synonymous. This morning, I want to look at the second half. To die is gain. To die is gain. Uh, One writer from the New York Times magazine, a, a lady by the name of Ann Patchett, I think it was in 2002 or 2003 when there was a sniper. Uh, He was nicknamed the Beltway Sniper who was shooting people in the Washington, D.C. area. And it appeared that he was shooting in a completely random way without concern for age or for race. She wrote an article speaking about death and bringing a, a, a reality to the American mindset of death. And I just want to read this to you. She says this, The fact is 
staving off our own death is one of our favorite national pastimes. Whether it's exercise, checking our cholesterol, having a mammogram, we are always hedging against mortality. Find out what the profile is. Find out what is the killer and what the killer is killing, who the killer is killing. Identify the ways in which you don't fit it. But a sniper taking a single clean shot, not into a crowd, but through a sight, reminds us horribly of death itself. And then she says this, despite our best intentions, death is still, for the most part, random, and it is absolutely coming. It's absolutely coming. Death is not a fun topic to talk about. It's not something that you enjoy chatting about with friends. Let's talk about death today. But I think we would be wise, sobered in our minds and in our spirits to contemplate death, and specifically our own death this morning. It is coming. It is absolutely coming in the words of Ann Patchett. And your view of death will drastically change your view of life and how you live. How do you view your death? How does the world view death? They they don't like it. They want to stay as far away from it as possible. They're scared. They're terrified. They avoid. They don't talk about it. They don't like it. They make light of it to try and pull out the power that is in it and the, uh, the truly terrifying aspect that there is a moment coming that we will end our existence here And ultimately, everybody knows Romans 2.15, every single person in their heart has a conscience that is testifying to them that they are wicked, that they are sinful, and they will have to give an answer to a holy God on the day of judgment. Everybody knows that, and that's why I think that they're scared of it. But for the believer, we can, in the words of Justin Martyr, die safely. Justin Martyr wrote, anyone can kill us, believers but no one can hurt us. Anybody can kill us, but nobody can hurt us. The gospel's enemies always end up making fools of themselves trying to kill believers because ultimately death is gain for believers. How do you view your death? Do you view yourself and your soul as invincible and death as gain for you? Or do you have a worldly mentality that you struggle with death and you don't like to think about it. And when, when it starts to pop up around you, whether it's a funeral or a loved one that you know, you just not, don't want to talk about it, don't want to think about it. Yesterday in Santa Clarita, of all places, um, a decently well-known actor named Paul Walker, he's 40 years old, died in a car accident. Died in a car accident, 40 years old. I have several friends that were on my basketball team, on my baseball team, on my football team in high school that went away to the war and one of them was killed by friendly fire, Um, one of them was killed by the enemy. In an instant, life is gone. How do we view our death and how can we say with Paul, death is gain because death is coming. Paul uses this word in verse 21, to die is gain. To die, it's a word specifically talking not about the process of dying, but it's specifically talking about the event and the results of the event. 
And he says that the results of the event of his death is gain. This word gain is used only three times in the New Testament. It's used here. It's used in Philippians 3, 7. For whatever things were gained to me, I count them all as loss in view of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ, the greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. And it's also used in Titus 1, verse 11. Basically, this word gain is the strongest word for describing what people crave and desire the most. So Paul is saying, in reality, for me to die is hitting the jackpot. It's wealth, it's riches, it's the greatest thing I could ever possibly imagine. It's what I want, gain. It's everything that my heart has always desired. So much so that in verse 23, he says that he has a desire to depart. That word desire is literally the word lust. It's used 38 times in the New Testament, and it's translated lust in 31 of those occurrences. Only seven times is it translated desire. Why is that? Because in our English connotation of lust, we instantly think that it's evil, right? We instantly think lust is wrong. Desire could be bad, could be good. Lust in the New Testament Greek just means a strong desire. What makes it bad or what makes it good is its object. Is it lusting after something wrong or is it lusting after something right? Paul says, I lust to be out of here, to depart. I long, I lust, I crave to be out of here and to depart and be with Christ because that is very much better. That is gain. The simple question that we have to ask ourselves is, Paul, how is dying gain? What makes it gain? What are the benefits that you receive when you die that you would obviously say it is gain for me to go through the process of death and come out the other side receiving something that this life cannot give to me. What are the benefits? It would do us well to think through benefits of death. So let me just go through a couple. Number one, when we die, we will enter into, for believers, we will enter into eternal, unceasing, perfect joy. When we die, we will enter into eternal, unceasing, perfect joy. No more sorrow, no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. Perfect joy. Like Christmas morning forever. Absolutely perfect joy. All the suffering of this world will be gone. Secondly, we will be removed from the presence of sin we will be removed from the presence of sin, which is a miracle because sin resides in us and God in the the glorification of our souls will take that sin out, perfect us once and for all. We will no longer be tempted. We will no longer give in to sin. We will no longer have that inner struggle. Sometimes when I'm speaking with people and, and counseling and discipling, they just get fed up with this life and they say, I just, I, I want to quit and I'm done. I just want to be done with the fight against sin. And they start giving up in the here and now. They start giving in to sin more easily because they say, I just want the fight to be over. And one of the things that I constantly say to my own heart and to them is don't steal heaven's joy. One of the amazing facts about heaven is that we no longer will have to fight against sin. So let's fight now knowing there is a day when we can rest. Don't steal heaven's joys away from heaven and try to live it in the here and now. Know that it's for another time, not yet to happen 
in this life. We will experience eternal, unceasing, perfect joy. We'll be removed from the presence of sin. We will experience perfect worship. And I'm not just just talking about your voice not cracking when you sing. I'm talking about undistracted praise and glorifying the Lord together. You're not going to be singing in heaven thinking about your to-do list and your grocery list anymore. You're not going to be singing and worshiping the Lord and with coveting in your heart, you're thinking about your neighbor next to you going, oh, I don't like them at all. No longer do you have to fight against sin. No longer do you have to fight to find your satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone. Fourthly, we will be home. We will be home. Paul uses the word in verse 23, depart. That's as close as Paul gets to speaking about the process of dying And instead of saying, my desire is to die or my desire is to, so many different ways he could explain dying, but he says, my desire is to depart. That's the closest that you get in the New Testament in Paul's mind to the process of dying. He just refers to it as departing. My departure is here, grab my bags, go to another place. This world isn't our home. We can't take anything in this world with us to the next But once we get to the next, we will no longer be in a Motel 6, as it were, in this world. We will be home. We will be home. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 tells us, Fifthly, we will understand fully how to please Christ. Understand fully how to please Christ. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we will finally understand. We won't be second-guessing. We won't be struggling to, quote-unquote, find the will of God or live that will of God out. We will know And we will fully understand how to please Jesus Christ. And lastly, 1 John 3, verses 1 through 2 tell us that we will be like Christ. We will be glorified. We will be perfectly sinless. We will not be God, but we will be like Christ in so many different ways. But if I can be honest, I I do not think that that is what Paul has in mind here in verse 21. When he says to die is gain, is he thinking about no more suffering? No longer will I be chained to a Roman guard. No longer will I be in prison. No longer will I receive the beatings and the whippings and the scourging. No longer will I be under the threat of death. I'll be home. I won't suffer. I'll be perfect. There are so many different ways and so many different benefits that we receive when we die, but I don't think that Paul's thinking about any of them. I think the one benefit that he has in mind is the one benefit that we must always have in mind, and that is that we will be with Jesus Christ forever. You remember John 14, verses 1 through 3. Jesus reminds his disciples, uh, I can't stay, I'm going, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, mansions for you. You hear the old adage, man, Jesus was a carpenter, imagine the mansions he's building for us. Amen and amen, it's going to be great, and the mansions are going to be enormous. But I don't think Paul would say, I cannot wait to die so that I can finally see my mansion. Because Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, and When I go, I go to prepare that place so that where I am, you may be also. Not where your house is, not where your mansion is, but where I am. The accent of heaven is not the place, it's the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 that he groans to be there. 
Not because it's going to be an amazing place where you can surf and not be eaten by sharks, even though that will be awesome. Right, Brian? He groans to be there because Jesus Christ is there. Do you have, like Paul, a much better desire, very much better desire to be with Jesus than anything else? You won't unless you treasure him here. Unless you can say that living is Christ, you will not be able to say death is gain. And you won't treasure Jesus Christ in this life if you don't know him. The only person who can say that dying is gain is the person who can say that living is Christ. Remember we talked last week, I think we get this flipped around. I think we say, well, living is gain. We try to accumulate as much as we can and then death is Christ because then we get him. Paul says, no, living is Christ and because I treasure Christ in this life, then I know that dying is gain because I get more of him. That's why death is gain. I get more of him than I could possibly imagine in this life. John Piper writes this, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food that you've ever liked and all the leisurely activities you've ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if all those things were there and Christ was not there? I think if we're honest, there are many times that we say, mm, yeah, because I'm looking forward to all those things, the benefits that heaven offers, instead of the person of Jesus Christ being revealed to us in glorious ways that we could, couldn't possibly imagine in this, in this world. What is it that you and I have that money cannot buy, that death cannot take away? It's Jesus and Jesus alone. When Paul says, I'm living for Christ, that means I'm not living to gain anything in this world to myself. I'm not living to treasure the things in this world. Whether it's a boat or nice cars or nice houses or nice cabins, I'm not living to treasure those things. I'm living to treasure Christ. And therefore, when I lose everything that is in this world, it's fine because when I gain Christ, it's gain for me. It's better than anything in this world. One writer says it this way, people who are content with living a wasted life, typically ask the wrong question about their behavior. They ask, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with this movie? What's wrong with this music? What's wrong with this game or these companions or this way of relaxing or this investment or this restaurant or shopping at this store? What's wrong with going to my cabin every weekend or, or having a cabin at all? This kind of question will rarely yield a lifestyle that commends Christ as all satisfying and makes people glad in God. The better question to ask about possible behaviors is this. How will this activity help me treasure Christ more? How will it help me show that I do treasure Christ at all? How will it help me to know Christ or to display Christ? The Bible says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So the question is mainly positive, not negative. How can I portray God as glorious in this action? Not what's wrong with this. How can I enjoy making much of him in this behavior? Not what's so bad about doing this. So our goal is to see death as gain because we see life as Christ. That's our goal. 
it does not mean at all that we should not enjoy this life. I think believers are the, those that can enjoy this life the best, the most, in, in ways that non-believers cannot enjoy this world. But we view this world rightly, and we view the next rightly as well. Turn to John 17. How are we supposed to view this world, the next world, in light of this world? How are we supposed to view, how does Jesus view it? Sometimes I think we, we, we cling to this world. It's the engagement period. Um, we are betrothed to Jesus Christ. And this is our engagement period. And when we die, we will, in a culmination with all of creation, once that final day happens, we'll be able to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the engagement and the betrothal will be over. And we will be with our bridegroom for all of eternity. And yet sometimes I think that we cling to the engagement period. No, no, no I don't, I don't want to get married. Let's keep on postponing the, the marriage. Let's get that wedding down the road. I like being engaged for 73 years. <laughs> Ladies, if your fiancé at the time ever said that to you, how quickly would you say, we're done, here's the ring? <laughs> we're out of here. And yet I think that sometimes it's as if somebody's asking us, what are you looking forward to most about being married? And in this engagement period, we say, can't wait to be in a new house. I cannot wait to be with new friends. I can't wait to see the color of the new carpet. There are so many different things that we cling to. How, how despairing and depressing would it be as a fiancé to hear that? That's the reason why we cannot wait to get married. We long to be with that person, not be with the things that that person has to offer us. That's the mindset that Jesus has in John 17, verse 24. Listen carefully. Jesus prays this, Father, I desire that they, this is all disciples, all believers, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Why? So that they can enjoy what is here? No, so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you realize that in a very clear prayer, Jesus Christ in verse 24 is praying for our death. He's praying for our death. How, how else are we supposed to get to him, to be with him? We can't be with him where he is apart from our dying or him coming back to take us home. He says, that'll be the best day in the world for you because then and only then will you be able to see my glory rightly and you'll be able to cherish me and treasure me and be satisfied by me perfectly. What kind of fool would think that this life is gain only to find that the next life that they enter is loss? Or in the words of Jesus, what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? Heaven is precious to Paul and it is gain, death is gain to Paul because Jesus is precious to Paul and Jesus is in heaven 
where Paul wants to go. Back in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says that he is hard-pressed. This is such a difficult decision because he really wants to go and be with Jesus because that is very much better. And verse 22, he says, If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. If I keep on continuing to live, then I can do good deeds. I can act in such a way that will be work or labor that is fruitful. I can bring about fruit in the lives of those around me. But I don't know which to choose fruitful labor by staying here or departing to be with Jesus Christ. Verse 23, I am hard-pressed from both directions. I'm hard-pressed. That word is used in Luke 19, verse 43, when Jesus says that the days will come when your enemies will hem you in on every side, stuck together, uh, stuck between a, a rock and a hard place, so to speak. You can't get out. You don't know where to turn. Paul says, this decision for me is so difficult. I'm hard-pressed from both sides because I have the desire to depart. I lust to leave and be with Jesus because that's very much better. But to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. What an amazing perspective on life and on death. Paul lives to exalt Jesus Christ above anything in this world. Paul lives to embrace Jesus Christ as treasure in this life and see his death as a means of treasuring him more. He knows 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, that's why he wrote it, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He cannot wait for that day. And we too must have a biblical perspective about life and death if we are to say death is gain. One pastor says it this way, and I love this quote. Death is a threat to the degree that it frustrates our goals, our greatest goals. Death is fearful to the degree that it threatens to rob you of what you value most. So if you value family most, then death is going to be a threat to you because you will lose your family. But Paul valued Christ most. He looked at death and he didn't see it as a frustration. He saw it as an occasion for the fulfillment of his highest value, that Christ would be magnified. We will magnify Christ in our dying precisely to the degree that we believe that fellowship with him in heaven is more to be preferred than any person or anything in this earth. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 10 verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. When we come to that hour when everything will be taken away from us but Christ, we will magnify Christ by saying, in Christ I have everything and more. I have everything and more. D.L. Moody once said it this way, some of you will read one day in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. You do not believe a word of it because at that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Death is gain because putting everything that we will lose in this life because of our death on the scale on one side and gaining one thing in the next, and that's Jesus Christ. It's gain. All of this stuff goes flying off the scale because Jesus is far more glorious, far more worthy, better than anything we could possibly comprehend. So are you living to treasure Christ now? Because if you are, then you will be able to say death 
is gain. Paul lives to exalt Jesus Christ above all things. Paul lives to embrace Jesus Christ as a treasure better than life and to see death as a means of treasuring him more. And third and finally in these verses, Paul lives to encourage others to find their joy in Christ alone. Paul lives to encourage others to find their joy in Christ alone. This logically makes sense. If he knows he has something that is more satisfying than anything this world can offer, if he's to be a good friend and a good companion, he will yell at the rooftops and and shout out from the rooftops, I have a treasure that is better than anything this world has to offer. Please treasure him with me. And that's exactly what Paul wants to do, longs to do with his life. Not only does he say in verse 22, if I live on in the flesh, it will mean fruitful labor for me. Not only does he say in verse 24, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake, but specifically verse 25 and 26, he says this, convinced of this, convinced of the fact that it's better, more profitable, and more necessary to stay and to remain, he says, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul lives to treasure Christ, and he lives to enable others to treasure Christ. He lives to minister to others, and this isn't just a pastoral responsibility. This should be the goal of all believers. As we treasure Christ, we encourage others to treasure Christ. That's all discipleship is. It's clinging to Jesus Christ with one hand, grabbing the hand of somebody next to you and trying to bring their two hands together to clasp clasp as one and then walk away and say, now you can treasure Christ and enable others to treasure him as well. Paul says, I want your progress and joy in the faith to continue. We've already seen that word progress in chapter one at the beginning. It's the word that means uh, the people that blaze the trail, the army corps that goes before the rest of the army to blow up the uh, obstacles and to make the path for the rest of the soldiers to go through. Paul says, I want you to progress in your faith. There are obstacles there, and I want to be able to be used by God to blow up those obstacles, whether it's sin or suffering or trials or temptations, whatever it might be that might Take your vision and pull it away and say, don't view Christ as treasure. View the things here as treasure. I want to blow those things up so that you can keep on pressing on towards Christ. I want you to have progress in the faith. And I also want you to have joy in the faith. Progress is referring to the quality of our life in Jesus Christ. Joy is referring to the quality of our experience of our progression in Jesus Christ. We long for maturity and joy. We long for growth. And Paul says, I want to stay here to enable you to grow. I want to stay here to help you grow and to see Jesus Christ as more precious than anything this world has to offer. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. How do we do this? How do we go about not only for our own hearts progressing in the faith and having joy in the faith, but how do we do this for others? Well, Paul helps us out in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. 
in pointing out these things of the brothers, you will be a good slave of Jesus Christ because you will be constantly nourished on the, on the words of the faith and you'll be giving that nourishment to others. You'll have sound doctrine that will enable others to grow. The way that we progress in the faith, the way that we progress in our joy in the faith is to develop a deeper understanding of the truth of God's word, the doctrine of God's word, and live in light of it. You cannot grow as a Christian without growing in your knowledge of this book. You cannot grow as a Christian without growing in your knowledge of this book. But a warning, growing in the knowledge of this book does not mean that you are growing in your progress and joy in Christ and in the faith. Knowledge enables growth. It allows for growth to happen, but it's not equal to growth. Just knowing truth doesn't equal living it out. And that's the way that we can ask and truly question whether or not the knowledge is actually working to grow and advance our progress in Christ and advance our joy in Jesus Christ. Are you putting into practice what you are learning? Is the knowledge that you are acquiring puffing you up or building maturity? Joy is absolutely impossible. Progress is absolutely impossible without deep doctrine. And so, Paul says, I want to remain, I will remain, and I will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And then, verse 26, he gives the ultimate purpose of the progress and joy. There's a little formula in the Greek. When you see the word for and so, when he says in verse 25, uh, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. There's a little formula. There's a, an immediate goal and then an ultimate goal that Paul is speaking about. The immediate goal is that they will have progress and joy in the faith. That's the for. The so is the ultimate goal. And let me show this to you in another passage that's just as clear in Second Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians, rather, chapter 5, verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, you see this formula yet again by Paul. He says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for, here's the immediate goal, for the destruction of his flesh. But that's not the ultimate goal. That's the immediate goal, that God would rain down terror on this man until he repent, because the ultimate goal is so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So you see that formula. There's an immediate goal that I want, and then there's an ultimate goal that will happen because of this immediate goal. Back in Philippians chapter 1, the formula is there. The immediate goal of Paul staying and remaining with the Philippian church is for their progress and joy in the faith. But that's not the end in and of itself. The ultimate goal is in verse 26 so that their proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Can I just say the NASB rarely gets things wrong, but this time it botches this verse completely? ESV actually gets this one right. If I translated this uh, from the Greek literally, it would say this, so that your proud confidence will abound more and more in Jesus Christ in me through my coming to you again. My Bible translates it that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus. You see, there's a little bit of a problem with that. I want you to have confidence in me. No, that's not what Paul is saying at all. What Paul is saying is he longs for the Philippian church 
to have confidence that they will not be put to shame, trust, complete trust and complete boasting in Jesus Christ through Paul or because of Paul or in Paul's coming to them again. He longs to be used by God to increase their confidence in Jesus Christ. Proud confidence in my Bible, so that your proud confidence is just literally so that your boasting It's translated boasting numerous times. This word is translated boasting numerous times in the New Testament. And again, it's translated here proud confidence because just like desire was translated desire instead of lust, there's a bad connotation to proud boasting. But again, in the Greek, the proud boasting isn't bad in and of itself. It's only bad when it's attached to boasting in something that is wrong. Here, when you're boasting in Jesus Christ, That could never be wrong. The biblical concept of proud confidence or boasting is what is your primary reliance? What do you rely on? Where do you put all of your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your trust? What are you relying on? That's why we sing songs like, I will glory in my Redeemer. That's, I will boast in Jesus Christ. I will glory in my Redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold. I, I trust I have proud confidence that he's waiting for me and he will come again and take me home. And we don't boast in ourselves anymore. We renounce self-reliance. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. I pour contempt on all my pride. I will not trust in myself or anything in this world. I will boast in Jesus Christ alone. So Paul says, I live to exalt Jesus Christ I live to embrace Jesus Christ as my treasure, whether by enjoying him and being satisfied with him in this life or by treasuring him more because of my death and being with him for all of eternity. And I live to encourage others in the faith to love Jesus, to treasure him. Do you live for those things? Do I live for those things? Are those the motivations of my life? Matt Chandler says, this is not the kind of Christianity any of us end up with except through a profound experience of Christ's cross applied to our lives. Because in the logic of of the gospel, there are no alternatives to Jesus Christ. Every other option is no option at all. When everything considered valuable in life is seen to be nothing in comparison to the glory of Christ, you learn rather well that Christ alone is worth living for. Christ alone is worthy of an entire life's affections and devotions. What are you devoted to? Where do your affections lie? What do you love? We talked about it last week. When you're not forced to think about something or or forced to talk about something, what is it that naturally comes to your lips or naturally comes to your mind? As you study God's word, you will see that it would be foolish to treasure and have affections for anything other than Jesus Christ. And the only way that we can treasure Jesus Christ is because he paved the way through his death, through his blood, through the murder of the Son of God on the cross. He paved the way for us to be able to treasure, cherish, love him, and be satisfied by him. That's what we do when we celebrate communion. When we celebrate, celebrate communion, we celebrate the fact that the way was made for us to be reconciled. 
we celebrate the fact that we treasured life and we treasured the things in this world and we had no care whatsoever for Jesus Christ. And then he died and showed us his glory, pulled back the veil so that we could see that he and he alone is all satisfying. So when we take communion, we are celebrating the fact that we treasure Christ above anything in this world. And that's why we want to spend a longer time savoring the death of Jesus Christ, remembering the fact that he willingly gave up his life so that he could be treasured by us. It's only when we treasure him through the cross that we can say death is gain. And only when we say death is gain do we look, taste, smell, have a totally different flavor than the people in this world. My prayer is that Christ Bible Church would be known by that verse. To us, living is Christ. We love him, we cherish him, we treasure him. He is everything to us. You take away everything in this world and it is still gain because we have him. And we know nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And dying is gain. I don't think the process of dying will be extremely pleasant. But I know the result of it will be better than anything I could possibly dream for. That Jesus Christ will be my glory forever. Father, I thank you for sending your son that we would be able to live to make much of him and in death we would be blown away by the fact that everything that we lose in this life means nothing compared to Christ and gaining him for all eternity. Father, I pray that as we ponder, as we consider your character, the truth of who you are, and as we prepare to partake of communion, we would realize we have no right to be in your presence right now. God, I pray that we would see your holiness rightly and that as we see who you are, we would say with Isaiah, I am condemned, I am undone, for I am a sinful man of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Holy One. And then as we ponder your holiness and our condemnation because we are sinners, God, I pray that you would take us to the cross. That we would see the provision made in the death and resurrection of the Son of God on our behalf so that we would never again fear wrath, fear condemnation, fear judgment or punishment. God, teach us now, even as we ponder these things, teach us now to have a love for heaven and even as we sing of what is happening in heaven right now, may we long to be with you and see our death one day as gain because it means more of you than we could possibly imagine. Thank you.